Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 28, and then I'm going to confess something to you, Exodus 28. Um, my confession is this, I have extended the Exodus series by a sermon. <laughs> now, <laughs> I want to say this, the reason is the tabernacle and the priesthood are so Christological and Christ-glorifying in their function that to do those in one giant chunk I felt like was doing a disservice to the Lord, and I would have felt guilty, to be honest with you. And so it's been extended by a couple. Um, one, one, because of the tabernacle, I covered it in two instead of one, and because of the passage that you see uh, is supposed to be 28 to 31, I'm only going to cover a little bit of it today and finish next week. So it... Um, all right, I'm through defending myself. We're going to move on. <laughs> I read an interesting analogy about reading the Old Testament. The author s- said that the Old Testament is the backstory to the New Testament. And to, to only study the New Testament and not know the Old Testament is like walking into the middle of a movie. You don't know the, you don't understand the backstory. And so you keep asking, annoying whoever you're with, who is that guy? You know, uh, and, you, you, and when you don't know the, the, the backstory, when things unfold in the movie, you don't understand the importance and the significance of why it's unfolding that way because you didn't see the backstory. And that is true about the Bible. Many of the most important parts of our faith Begin right here in Exodus. Exodus is a critical book. The Old Testament is critical for our understanding of the New Testament. And I know many uh, many people say, well, I'm only a New Testament Christian. There are pastors that say we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And that is that is that is tragic to do that because you have you cannot understand and appreciate Christ to the fullest extent unless you understand the Old Testament. So here, we're, we're in some chapters that we tend to skim, skip, or ignore. We're introduced to some important categories, the priesthood, the spirit, and the Sabbath. We're only going to cover the priesthood today. We'll cover the spirit and the Sabbath next week. These categories, including the spirit, point us more fully to Jesus Christ himself, and so In Exodus 28, if you'll stand with me, we'll read the first five verses. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak... To all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him before my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. Lord, my chief desire today is that Christ 
be glorified and that the, the breathtaking sweep of what Christ has done for us is made known fully in the garments of the high priest in the Old Testament here in Exodus. Fill our hearts and minds with the glory of Christ today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. So today, we're going to see that we have a great high priest who works on our behalf. And, we're, and the focus of the high priest in this chapter is on his clothing. It focuses on the priests who serve in the tabernacle. Notice something, though, in verse number one. Notice this, that Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, are, they're called by God, aren't they? They, they didn't claim it for themselves. Their calling came from God. There was no such thing as a self-appointed priest. The same principle holds true in the church. There are no self-appointed pastors. There are no self-appointed elders or deacons. When God calls someone to public service in the church, he gives an inward sense of calling but if the call to sacred ministry really comes from God, then it will also come through those who hold the authority in the church. They're going to see it. This principle is illustrated by the call of Aaron. Aaron did not volunteer to become high priest. As a matter of fact, we were going to see that Aaron led the whole nation into idolatry. All of them. And within six months was called to be high priest. And that, that, by the way, is a testament to the forgiveness of God, isn't it? But, uh, but anyway, Aaron didn't volunteer to become high priest. He was appointed by God, speaking through his servant Moses. Now, the next verses uh, of, um, named the articles of clothing to be worn by the priests, and they were carefully made by men who were, had a God-given gift for craftsmanship. I'm going to fast forward a couple of verses. I didn't think this thing through that well. Um, and, and so I want to just go through the pieces real quick. The first thing is the breast piece. Now, when you look at this, the first most disturbing thing is the guy didn't have a face. But uh, this, is the best, this is the best graphic I could find with the colors I wanted to see. But the breast piece, the, the breast piece is this little square right here, okay? The breast piece is adorned with gemstones, and it went over the high priest's um, chest, this was attached to the ephod, which was a long sleeveless apron. You see it right here? Long sleeveless, and it's got a gemstone here and a gemstone here. We're going to get into the, the details. I'm just going over the overview, and then we'll come back to this, the parts, okay? The next was the, um, the tunic, okay? Now, or I'm sorry, the robe. The robe is this blue, Okay, you'll notice it has golden bells on the bottom of it. We'll talk about that. But the blue is the robe. Then you have the tunic. The tunic is a long-sleeved garment right here. You see the bottom of the tunic here and then the sleeves of the tunic here. Finally, add on undergarments. And then you'll notice that he has his um, turban. Thank you, his turban. And these were the... Articles of clothing that he wore as he went into his sacred duties as in the tabernacle. And it uh, described several things. The three things it described was holy, glory, 
and beauty. Holiness, glory, and beauty. The colors of the priest's garments. This is interesting. The color of the priest's garments were the same colors used in the making of the tabernacle. Same colors. So what did that do for the high priest? That, um, that took the high priest and showed that the high priest embodied the tabernacle. He was the embodiment of the tabernacle. Anyone who saw him recognized that he belonged in the tabernacle. The holiness and the glory and the beauty of his apparel associated him with God. The priest and the tabernacle both pointed to God. The words ascribed on the high priest's garments could just as well be used to describe God's divine nature. And in fact, this is the way the Bible generally employs them. God is holy, isn't he? He's set apart in his purity. God is glorious, working all things for his own glory. And the uncovering of God's character is the disclosure of who God is, and it shows him in all his beauty as well. Holiness, glory, beauty. These are all essential attributes of God. Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so if this is what God is like, beautiful in his holiness, glorious in his splendor, then the only way to approach him is to be adorned with holiness, glory, and beauty. Right? You don't come into the presence of a king in rags. You wouldn't do that in the presence of, a, of, of the president. Glory, beauty, and holiness. And so the way the high priest of Israel was dressed when he put on his sacred robes and entered the holy place is very important. Now one interesting note, other than the fact that the guy has no hands and no feet and no head, notice something else. There are no shoes described. There are no shoes no footwear is mentioned, and if you think back to the burning bush incident, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, God told him to remove his shoes because he was on holy ground. Likewise, we understand that the ground of the tabernacle was holy, therefore, no shoes were to be worn. Isn't that fascinating? It was holy ground. Now, let's get into the, the verses of the description, verses 6 to 14, We'll talk about the ephod. Verse number six, and they shall make an ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twisted linen, skillfully worked. Now remember, the ephod is this long sleeveless vest right here. Right here, that's the ephod, the, the many colored ephod. It had two shoulder straps. On each shoulder was an on, it was a stone of onyx. On each of the stones were six names of the tribes of Israel. Six on this side, the other six on that side. This showed that the high priest represented the people before God. As God said to Moses, look at verse number 12 of chapter 28. Verse number 12, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Just like Christ bears the names of his people on his shoulders in front of the Lord. One minor problem with the priesthood is that priests were not perfect, were they? 
They weren't perfect. They needed a beautiful priest who would offer his pure life to God. In a word, they needed Jesus because the great message of the gospel is that God provided the perfect priest in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God's people needed a perfect priest. They needed a holy priest who was uncorrupted by his own sin. They needed a glorious priest who would shine forever the the glory of God's light. They needed a beautiful priest who would offer his pure life to God. In a word, they needed Jesus. Because the great message of the gospel is that God has provided the perfect priest in in the form of his son, and his name is Jesus Christ. We learn about Christ's priestly ministry and study in the tabernacle. Whatever the, whatever the high priest did for Israel in the holy place, God or Jesus has done for us in heaven. Remember last week we saw that the, the tabernacle was a, a picture of heavenly realities. And Christ did in heaven what the high priest did for us in the tabernacle, or did for Israel in the, the tabernacle. This is the main argument of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 14. Listen to these words. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. He's our great high priest. The next article of clothing, go to verses 15 to 28, is the breast piece. Verse number 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work, In the style of an ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and scarlet yarns, fine twisted linen, you shall make it. Now, to review, the high priest served in the tabernacle, the most holy place where God was, the Holy of Holies. It was his responsibility to make atoning sacrifices. As the high priest carried out these duties, he wore special clothes, these sacred garments, which were made of the same stuff as the tabernacle, were were designed to make him presentable to God. Holy, glorious, and beautiful, these clothes were just like God is. This shows what it takes for sinners to come into the presence of a holy God. We cannot come into the presence of a holy God unless we've been made holy and glorious and beautiful ourselves. Are you feeling it this morning? <laughs> the most striking feature was the breast piece. Now remember, it's this little piece right here that had the 12 stones on it. <clears throat> it was a beautiful collection of gems. Gems. They were arranged in three, uh, four rows of three. Three precious stones on each of the four rows. And on each stone was the name of one tribe of Israel. So all 12 tribes were, rec- uh, were uh, represented on this breast piece. The translation of some of the Hebrew words for these stones is uncertain. As a matter of fact, when you read different translations of the Bible, you have different stones listed because we're not exactly sure what each of the stones are. We know most of them, but there's some that's just impossible to know what gems they had, God had in mind, what color they were. But the breast piece represented a dazzling array of stones. And here's what's important. There are a couple very important things about the breast piece. Number one, these stones are the same gemstones 
mentioned in the Garden of Eden. You see it in Ezekiel 28, verse number 13. By the way, that reminds me, I misspoke last week. When I was talking about, uh, the, 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 I, I mentioned the, the cherubim in, in Ezekiel 28, and I, I was talking about Satan in Eden. That wasn't in Eden, that was in heaven. I think I said Eden, I meant to say heaven, but if you don't remember that last week, then don't worry about it, okay? But these, these gemstones were uh, in the Garden of Eden, and we will see nearly all of them again, probably see all of them, to be honest with you, again in heaven where they decorate the foundation of God's city, right? Now, this is a hint that what God was doing with Israel at the tabernacle was part of his plan for the whole world. The plan that stretches us from creation to glory. These gemstones represent, you ready? The gemstones represent the people of God. Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament, right? They represent, God, the high priest represented them. You go to the, the, the uh, gemstones of the New Jerusalem, you find the 12 tribes, you find the 12 apostles there. And it's basically saying that the people of God are with God in heaven and on earth now. It's, it's a representation. Each stone, um, each stone was engraved with the name of a tribe. This is a vivid remi um, reminder of what God said to his people when they first arrived at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Are stones treasures? They are. And so the, 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 this is a hint that what God wants to do, what his plan is for the world that stretches from creation to glory, is he wants all his people with him in his presence. The second important thing that we need to note about this breast piece is that it was a memorial for the high priest who wore it close to his heart. Exodus 28 says that. You wear it close to your heart. He interceded for God's people. Carrying people close to the heart is a responsibility of any spiritual leader. It is. But there's only one who can do this with eternal effectiveness, and that's Jesus Christ, our high priest. He's the one who bears our burdens on his shoulders, especially the weight of our guilt, which he bore when he died for our sins on the cross. And now Jesus continues to carry our concerns close to his heart. One of his high priestly duties is to pray to God on our behalf. The Bible says that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7.25 We have a high priest who always has us on his heart and on his mind. Our names are engraved, so to speak, on the gemstones that cover Christ's breast piece. He has bound himself with cords of his everlasting love, making us secure forever in a place that's close to his heart. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? That's Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at verses 29 and 30. There's no picture for this, and you'll see why in just a minute. In verses 29 and 30, it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. And then he goes 
when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. Now, I know some people say Urim and Thummim. Hebrew, the I is a, an e, long E sound, so it's Urim and Thummim. Okay, you can correct anybody you want. I wouldn't suggest it, but you can. Okay. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. The breastpiece contained the Urim and the Thummim. These are Hebrew words that mean light and perfection. That's what these words mean, which isn't much to go on, right? He's carrying the Urim and the Thummim. Now, they, it seems that they are two stones or multiple stones that are thrown to determine God's will like some kind of, please don't take this wrong, like holy dice. I don't know of a better word. They throw them like dice. Some scholars speculate that they were made of stone. Others say they're precious gems like the ones in the breastpiece. We simply don't know. Most likely they're black and white. And whether some scholars say they were thrown other scholars say they had a pouch, and he reached into his pouch and pulled out a stone, and whichever one he happened to pull out was the one that he, he had. We don't know, but they seem to only answer yes or no questions, and they were used for questions about the whole nation, okay? That's what the questions were for. They were used all through the Old Testament. I wish I had time to go through the Old Testament all the different times that they were used, but I'll give you one example. Uh, when David is at, or when David asked God if he should attack the Philistines, God said, "Go attack the Philistines." That's First Samuel twenty three one, and he used these 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 the Urim and the Thummim to to find that answer. Later, David received answer when he used the ephod to learn if he should attack the Amalekites. In First Samuel thirty verses one to eight, he does the same thing. And God gives him an answer using the Urim and the Thummim there as well. Now, why am I talking about this? Because I want to talk to you about something very important for the Christian life that uh, we, we need to think about today. The principle is this, that permission to inquire of the Lord through the priests by means of the Urim and Thummim in the pouch was granted only to the person standing at the head of the people and only in matters of public concern. In other words, the only people who were allowed to come to the priest and ask these questions of the priest, of God through the priest, were, was a head of the people, the nation. And not only that, but he was only to ask questions of public concern. The Urim and the Thummim were not used by ordinary people to make ordinary decisions. People didn't go to the high priest when they wondered what outfit they should wear to the ball. They, they, they didn't go to the priest when they were wondering what they should eat for dinner. They didn't even use them to resolve more important questions, more serious questions like, who should I marry? Like us, when it comes to practical decisions for daily living, as well as to personal choices that affected the future, the Israelites had to rely upon sanctified common sense. Now, God could have done the same thing for us, couldn't he? He could have given us holy dice to roll or to carry around in little pouches. 
You know, anytime we, we would like, uh, we would take them out and roll them on the table. You know, you could do this. Should I go to Virginia Tech? Oh, no, I shouldn't. So, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I was in Blacksburg for a little bit this weekend, and um, so that came to mind. Should I, you know, should I marry Fiona? No? Okay. Should I take that job in Savannah? Should I be a missionary in Indonesia? Wouldn't that be easy? Wouldn't that be great? Just lay it out for me, Lord, and I'll do it. How many have ever prayed that way? Just lay it out for me, Lord. Well, guess what? That's the kind of guidance that most people want. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has not chosen to give us the direct means of divine guidance in these specific decisions. He doesn't give it that way to us. This is partly because God has told us the most important thing that we need to know. And that is salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay for sin and rose from the dead to give eternal life. And from time to time, God gave direct guidance to Israel because he was still working out the plan of salvation. He needed to preserve Israel because he was still working out his plan of salvation. He needed to preserve Israel because he was still planning on having the Messiah to come. By the way, I'm going to just note this. When Israel split into two two parts, ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, the tribe to the south was called Judah. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. What happened to the northern tribes? They ceased to exist. They never existed after deportation. However, Judah did, and that's because the Messiah came through Judah. There was a preservation of Judah going on there. God has said everything that needs to be said. Did you know that? The Bible says that. In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and at many times, and how? Various ways, including, should I go to battle against the Philistines? But look at what it says. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When God's people were in their infancy, they needed things like these two uh, stones, holy dice, whatever you want to call it, to guide them. But now that salvation has reached its full maturity, and God has said it all in Jesus Christ, the most important decision that we have to make is whether or not we will trust him for our salvation. That's why we have God's Word. The Bible doesn't contain private information about each person's destiny, but it does reveal God's will for our lives. Did you know that? God, teenagers, when I was a youth pastor, you know, what, how do I determine God's will? Well, read your Bible. All right? That's not very helpful. Yeah, it is. God's got a will for you. You know what His will is? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Dear teenager, are you controlling your body in holiness and honor? Dear parent, are you controlling your body in holiness and honor? That is the will of God. Or again, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks to all, in all circumstances, 
For this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. Dear believer, are you rejoicing always? Yeah, I don't know what Virginia Tech did yesterday in the football game. I'm sure somebody's going to tell me. But are you rejoicing whether they won or lost? Are you rejoicing in, in all circumstances? Are you praying without ceasing? Are you giving thanks no matter what circumstances you find yourself in? If you are, then you are doing God's will. If you are not, then you are out of God's will. Isn't that simple? God revealed His will to us. So this means that knowing God's will starts with reading and studying and obeying God's Word. What we need more than anything else, even more than knowing what to do, listen, what we need more than even knowing what to do is a deeper and more personal knowledge of God through the study of His Word. Know God. You, you've been married long enough, many of you, you can predict exactly the way your spouse is going to act. You know exactly the right thing to do, do for your spouse and to interact with your spouse. Why? She didn't come with a manual. You know her. And you know exactly what to do. And the same thing is true of God. You know God and you'll know what to do. And when we know the Bible, what it says to do, whatever specific decisions we will be making in keeping with God's revealed will. He is living within us. He is shaping our minds and our hearts, helping us to make good choices, giving us inward peace when we finally arrive at the right decision. I'm going to quote someone here. I try not to quote too many people in sermons, but this is really good. This is Sinclair Ferguson. He said, knowing God's will comes through a combination of of the study of God's Word, where we learn the great principles, that's what the study of God's Word does, a heart which is submitted to the Lord of the Word. So in other words, study that Word, obey that Word, right? That's what he's saying. And then with the help of the Spirit who illuminates the Word and leads us to true application to our own situation, right? That's how God leads and guides now, I'm going to say something that's going to offend some of you. I do not, when somebody says, God told me. Sometimes if I'm in the right kind of mood, I'll say, hey, can you show me in the Bible where God told you this? I had a guy in one of my churches say, God told me to go be a missionary to Mexico. The unfortunate part is, God didn't get that message to his wife, and it was a bad situation. I would encourage you to refrain from using the words, God told me, unless it's God's word. Because God does not work in that way. God works not only through his word, but also through the working of his providence. When we face difficult decisions, we should pray to God to use our circumstances to clarify his calling. In other words, what gifts has God given us? What desires has he placed on our hearts? What opportunities has he set before us? What needs are we able to meet? God uses all these things to guide us. And we should ask God for discernment to know what our gifts are, the contentment to want what he wants, the compassion to give our lives for the sake of others. And at the same time, 
We should pray for God to close doors that need to be closed and open doors he wants us to walk through. And then we should use the freedom he's given us to make the best choice that we can. This is the way God leads. Ferguson also said this. He said his leading is not usually a direct assurance, a revelation, but a sovereign controlling of his circumstances in our lives with the word of God as our rule. So listen very carefully. God has said everything to you he wants to say to you in the Bible. That's clear from the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Read the first two verses of Hebrews, crystal clear. Beyond that, then, we study that book and then we rely upon the providences of God to lead and guide us. And all that together allows us to glorify Him. Now think about it. If it were simply the, the, as simple as an instruction manual, you know, if you, when you get to this corner, turn right. Or, hey, uh, this is where you should go to school. Throw those holy dice out there. There would be no need for us or no desire for us to have a relationship with God, to know the heart of God. Why would you need to know the heart of God when you can just throw the dice out there? When he, you know, I always want him to just write, I, I like airplanes, so I want him to write it in the sky for me. You don't, you don't have to know God that way. If it is true that God uses the circumstances of life to show us His will, and if we are uncertain as to what God is calling us to do, then we are called to wait upon God. As far as we know God's will, we should do it. Where the way is not yet clear, we should quietly wait for God to work, trusting that He will guide us in and through our circumstances in His own good time. Well, i got to move on. This is extremely important to communicate. The next item of clothing is the blue robe. Look at verses 31 to 35. You shall make a robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, so, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. So the robe of blue or violet, whatever you want to say, is this part here, and then it's bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate. And um, the same color, it's used for the entrance of the veil into the Holy of Holies. It's the exact same color. Okay? It was a seamless garment that went under the ephod and hung down to at least the knees. Since the high priest pulled it over his own head like a poncho, God told Moses to make the collar extra sturdy. It was fringed with pomegranates, and little bells made a tinkling sound whenever the high priest moved. I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute, why that's important. But let's move on to the turban. The turban, uh, verse number 36 to 38, the turban. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it 
like the engraving of a signet. Listen, this is very important. Holy to the Lord is written on that on that uh, plate of gold. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Things are getting a little bit serious now. There's some of the things that we've seen in the last couple of items of clothing. The turban was made of linen and twirled around the high priest's head. And the most important part of the turban was this golden plate right here. Or more literally, um, the, uh, the, the crown. Actually, the Hebrew word is flower. It's the golden flower on his head. And it was fixed to the front, rested on the high priest's forehead. This diadem made of gold, suitable for entering the throne room of God, and it was engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord. That inscription marked the high priest as belonging to the majesty's sacred service. It meant that the people he represented were a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Now, underneath all those other clothes, the priest wore a tunic, long sleeve garment that went down to the ground. Look at verses 39 to 41. 39 to 41, you shall weave the coat in a checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. What the other priests wore was similar to the high priest, only simpler, because they did not represent the whole nation. But they wore this tunic. Remember, this is the white tunic. You can see the bottom here, the sleeves, and then right around the collar. Um, the, the other priest did not wear extra garments. They didn't wear crowns on their heads. They didn't wear extra garments uh, like the high priest wore. But the tunic underneath was the same. All of them wore a tunic. All the priests were clothed with dignity and honor. The high priest wore such magnificent clothes because his ministry was so important. His special outfit was symbolic of a sacred calling, which was to stand for the people before the Lord. That's his job. That's a very important job. God is holy in his majesty and glorious in his beauty. Therefore, Whoever approaches God may be clothed with dignity, must be dressed with dignity and honor, and it has not changed since the beginning of time. And it will be the same in the future. The high priest entered God's holy sanctuary to bear the guilt for Israel's sin. Whenever the, whenever the people sinned, they brought their quote-unquote sacred gifts, which means their offerings, and their sacrifices to the tabernacle. Then the high priest presented them to God, and God would only accept them. He would only accept them on the basis of sacrifice. And the sacrifice, for it to be accepted, it had to be offered by the holy priest. So realize this. The people offered their sacrifices. The high priest, in, in essence, took their sacrifices and represented them before the Lord, and only he could do that. 
This is why the statement on his forehead was so important. It confirmed that God regarded him as holy, and thus it gave assurance that the Lord would accept the people's sacrifice. Because remember, holy to the Lord, and then the names of the people on his clothing. Remember that? That's the importance. Their salvation depended on the representative righteousness stamped on his forehead. When the people saw that inscription, they knew that God would accept them, considering them to be holy in his sight. Now, we sometimes fail to appreciate how dangerous this was. Coming into the presence of God can be fatal. It's serious business. He is a God of such supreme holiness that it's dangerous even to approach Him. We have sensed this danger all the way through Exodus, haven't we? The burning fire, the glory on the mountain. We're going to see some other things later on in Exodus. When God visited Egypt as an avenging angel, the people were only safe when they had the blood on the doorpost, right? Approaching Him on basis of sacrifice. Um, Mo, with Moses, it was a flaming bush. When the Israelites reached Sinai, they were not only forbidden to go up to meet God, they weren't even allowed to touch His holy mountain. He is not safe. The only person who was allowed to approach God was the mediator, and only if he was dressed in holiness. The high priest had the most dangerous job in all of Israel. You ever think about that? It wasn't the warriors that went out and fought. It was the high priest. The most dangerous job in Israel. Literally, his life was in jeopardy every time he served in the tabernacle. Let that sink in. God is dangerous. And even his clothes gave off warning. The little bells on his robe, which jingled as he walked, were necessary to protect his very life. I remind you what God said in verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and his sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so he does not die. You do not go into the presence of a king unannounced. And those bells served as an announcement to the king of kings, lord of lords, somebody's coming in to see. And somebody's coming out. God is dangerous. Coming into God's presence was a matter of life and death. This was not only true for the high priest, it was also true for the nation of Israel. Their salvation depended upon whether or not God accepted their priest. If God did not accept him, they would die in their sins. And, and let me just pause there. There is an inc incident in the Old Testament where there is a vision of a high priest that did not have on those garments. I wish I had time to set that up for the coming of the Messiah. So what I decided to do, I'm going to write two devotions this week to the church describing that incident and the importance of it Christologically. It's, it's, it's a tremendous short little study, and I'll send it out this week on Wednesday and Friday because I think it's that important, but I've got to move on. And the same is true for all of us. Coming into God's presence is always a matter of life and death. Will God accept us? or reject us? Will he condemn us for our sins, 
or will he accept us on the basis of a whole holy sacrifice given by a holy priest? The question will be answered once and for all on the day of judgment, when every person will stand before God, and then only the holy will survive. Only the holy will survive standing in, in God's presence on the day of judgment. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the only way that we can receive holiness is when it is imputed to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. When the old, what the Old Testament says about the priesthood points us to Jesus Christ, whom God has appointed to be our great high priest. Jesus Christ is the one man whom God has appointed to be our great high priest forever and ever and ever. The high priest was the symbol. Jesus is the reality. He does all the things for us that the high priest did for Israel. He bears the burden of our sin on the shoulders. He carries our concerns close to our heart. He represents us before God, and he does his priestly work. He stands in perfect holiness so that we are all holy before the Lord. Amen? Holiness is not something that Jesus just puts on like a robe or writes on his forehead. Holiness is who he is. The Bible says that Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, Hebrews 7, 26. It also says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 that he is our holiness. In other words, he is holy for us so that we can be holy to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible says further that if we sin, now, does anybody hear sin? The Bible says further that if we sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the righteous holy priest. And so if we look to Jesus in faith, the way the Israelites look to their high priest, we will be holy to the Lord. The question, the most important question I can ask you today is this. Have you looked to Jesus in faith and is God looking at you, seeing his son, Jesus Christ, his righteousness put upon you, and seeing the words, holy to the Lord. Do you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt? Do you know that you have that confidence right now, today, that if you stand before that God on the day of judgment, remember, he is a dangerous God. He's a dangerous God. And if you've been playing around with Christianity, you've been just going through the motions, you've been just trying to be a good person by coming to church, and you're trying to do the right thing, and you're pleasing people and putting on a front, and you have not had the holiness of Jesus Christ placed upon your life, you will experience that danger, and you will pay for it for all of eternity. God is a dangerous God. He is not to be trifled with. If there is any doubt in your mind, I implore you, get it settled today. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. 
who is the perfect righteous priest, holy to the Lord, upon or from whom we have received imputed righteousness, from whom we have received holiness because we are in Christ. I have no doubt, Lord, that there are some here today who do not know you, and you do not know them. I also know that there are some who are doubting. Lord, I pray that today they will get the matter settled once and for all, so that not only can they daily have confidence that when they pass over into eternity, they're going to be with you, but so that their lives will glorify you here on, on earth as they be, become more and more conformed to the image of your Son, to the praise of his glory. In Christ's name, amen.